Justin and Carolyn, it is wonderful to see you in the service today. Stand up and show that baby to this congregation. Come on. There's a miracle right there before your very eyes, folks. Precious little boy. Turn around. I can't see him. There's a story about that that if you wonder, don't know them, you'll hear the story, I'm sure, one day coming soon. But let me just say that I'm sure glad that we serve a God who hears and answers prayer. How about you? Um, sing this with me. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take All the harmonies, come on. Just There you go. Just to know. Okay, fill the room, come on. for grace. Sing that again. Sing it. Oh, just one more time. Oh, for grace. One more time. Oh, There's no sweeter sound to my ears than hearing God's people sing together and exalting His name. And how many of you are thankful today that you can trust the Lord? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm sure that most of you know that one of the ministries of Bethesda that takes place on this campus Monday through Friday is not only our child development center, our very fine preschool, and our school of ministry where we are training young people for uh, ministry in the church, but also our Bethesda Christian School, which is K through 12, that takes place here Monday through Friday. And I, um, I, um, I watch every day as our students come and go, and they go to their various classes. And there are times, believe it or not, that it brings back memories to me of being in school. Yes, it's a distant memory, I know. <laughs> but it nonetheless brings back memories. How many of you remember cramming for a test? Anybody ever do that? Five of you. Okay, great. I just remember as I watch our students uh, go to their classes, and some of them look sometimes a little stressed having to go, you know, take a test or whatever. And I remember uh, cramming for a test or forgetting that I had a certain test or a quiz and trying to, you know, get it together beforehand and uh, as best I could. 
Um, and then I just remember what it was like to, to try to take a test and get that information. How many remember that thinking, if I can just remember it until third period and I can forget it for the rest of my life? There are thousands of pieces of information that have, I'm sure, come into this brain and gone out within hours as soon as, soon as, they, as, soon as it left. So I, I remember what it was like. So I was good at devising little phrases and things that I could try to say to, to help me remember uh, some of the information I need to remember. So that's why when I see a cute little phrase now or see something, it, rem- it reminds me of those days when I used to, try to, it used to try to help me in school. Sometimes what I see today is like on a bumper sticker or maybe on the side of a truck or a back of a truck as I'm driving down the street. I saw one the other day on a plumber's truck, and it said this, We repair what your husband tried to fix. I have his number for you, sweetheart. I, I knew you'd want it, probably. In a place that was a non-smoking area, there was a sign that said, if we see smoke, we will assume you are on fire and take appropriate action. Of course, you know, I make a lot of hospital calls, and one day, walking into the maternity ward, there was a sign on the door that simply said this, push, push, push. This week, Becky was at the optometrist's office, and, um, and uh, I was with her for the last few minutes, and, and there was a sign on the counter that says, if you don't see what you're looking for, you've come to the right place. <laughs> there was another one on a fence, on a house at a fence, they had a sign that said, Sales, salesmen are all welcome because dog food is expensive. At a car dealership, they have a sign that says, the best way to get back on your feet is to miss a car payment. (laughs) Go ahead, take a while with that one. You'll get it. The best way to get back. back. You've got it. And I like this one. This is the last one. Outside this muffler shop, it said, no appointment necessary. We can hear you coming. It's always interesting to me to note the things that I do actually remember and, and the little trigger that caused me to remember it because there's obviously there's so much that I forget. But if I took one person from the Bible and had to put a phrase over him that caused me to remember him, uh, and if I told you that man was David and we were going to put this phrase over him, what would that phrase be? Anybody know? He was a man after, man after God's own heart. And that phrase, which the prophet uh, says in 1 Samuel 13 is given to him, it's, it's used to tell us what God was seeking out in a man to take over his kingdom, particularly after the arrogance and the pride of Saul, his predecessor. And God makes it clear that he's looking for a man after his own heart. And by the way, do you know what made David a man after God's own heart? Very simple. He was a man of prayer. He was a man who sought the Lord. He sought God's opinion. He, he wanted to know God's will. He wanted to know God's plan. So since he sought that, he was known as a man after God's own heart. And what's really interesting to me about that phrase given to him is that no matter what David had done, and as you know, David had some interesting days, no matter his journey, 
no matter what had come his way or what he had been through. When you get to the New Testament, David is still referred to as a man after God's own heart. I don't know about you, but that blesses me and encourages me greatly because when you think of all the junk that we go through and all the stuff that we bring upon ourselves and and the things that we face, the good and the bad, how many of you know that David had some really bad days? He did. But how many are thankful that David was not defined by those days? And I would have to think that if you are grateful for that, it's because you're thankful that you and I are not defined by our, our, our bad days. Can I get a witness to that today? I'm going to take you to a story in 1 Samuel that's one of those bad days for David. He's running from Saul. He has defeated Goliath in chapter 17. Chapter 18, he has struck down 200 Philistines. He had many different acts of bravery. But what was really facing David at this moment that we're going to go to in Scripture in just a minute was a question that he was having to face. And the truth is, in as much as we're looking at that, We have to see it's a question you and I have to face today, and that is this. What are you leaning on? What are you leaning on? You see, every one of us in this room, starting with me, we lean on someone or something to get us through this life. And I'm going to challenge you today in the next few minutes, if you'll stay with me here for just a bit, I'm going to challenge you to think about this. What are you leaning on? What are the props and what's the support system for you? You see, up to this point, David had done everything right in his life. He'd been the model of of faith and courage and obedience and integrity and devotion to God. However, he was still a very young man and he was living a long way from home, was living a long way from his family, and he, like all of us do, he needed stability in his life. And so God in His grace placed some things and placed some people in David's life to be a support system for him. And I don't know about you, but I thank God for support. I don't know where I would be today without some of the support, supportive people and things that God has placed in my life to support me, and I know, I know you feel the same. Let me give you some of these things that were the support system for David, and you, you see if there's any parallel for you. He leaned on the support of position. You know, a young man needs to get some traction. A young woman needs to get some traction, if you will, to find their legs, to try their, try their wings, whatever, whatever phrase you want to use. And so this humble shepherd boy had been promoted to captain over a thousand in Saul's army. He also had been promoted to be the chief musician in Saul's court. These are things that had come his way because of his proven diligence and his proven skill set and what he had done up to this point. And so he had been awarded with position. And God in His grace had allowed his, this position He had been given to be a part of the support system that nurtured Him and that supported Him and gave Him strength and gave Him courage and encouragement to go on to the next day and the next step. His work gave him stability, even in establishing himself as a young adult. But not only did he lean on the support of position, he leaned on the support of popularity because the people of Israel loved David and they respected him for what he had done and and how he had conducted himself before them. There's a metaphor that we use sometimes when we talk amongst the staff 
And we say that, you know, leadership requires credibility. And every decision that you make as a leader, you are either gaining or losing credibility chips is what we call them when we talk about the staff. And so there's something to be said for building that pile of credibility chips based upon the decisions that you've made and the people that you are leading. It's required for leadership. Learning, can they trust your leadership? Do they trust the decisions that you're going to make? Have you earned uh, their credibility, their in, the, your integrity and the credibility that you have with them? And so David was enjoying popularity. And it became part of his support system that he was leaning on. Well, he not only leaned upon the support of position and popularity, but he was leaning on the support of the people God had placed in his life, particularly through the difficult days. There was his partner in marriage. Her name was Michael, M-I-C-H-A-L. David was given a wife who genuinely loved him. And no doubt he grew great strength from leaning on the support of, of her love for him. And there was also the prince, Jonathan, who we all know that what had a close relationship David and Jonathan had. And so that was a support system as a person that God had placed in David's life. Jonathan had become uh, the eyes and ears for David to much of what he was doing. And so not only did he have Michael, his partner, did he have Jonathan, the prince, but then there was also the prophet, Samuel, had been placed in, in his life. The old prophet had taught David much about sacrifice and worship and service, and he was a significant support to David through all those years. So he had the support of position. He had the support of popularity. He had the support of people. But I think there was one more that David leaned on in his, this support system that God had, had placed there for him, and that was he leaned on the support of pride. David took pride in the life he lived and knew how to carry himself before the Lord. And he placed a great deal of emphasis on doing the right thing. He, he had self-respect. He had self-control. He had self-esteem. I mean, the dude had it together in every way. And so, you know, his pride was a crucial part of his support system. And there's nothing wrong with the right kind of pride. You know, I trust as I'm sharing this that you're going to diligently draw the parallel to yourself, as I said a moment ago, and ask yourself the question, what are you leaning on? What are you leaning on? Because you're leaning on something for sure. And though David's support system had been developed and that he was using that system to navigate his way through life and through the circumstances he had, it had been developed somehow, God in his sovereignty... God in His wisdom had determined that the time had come for His support system not to be further developed, but for it to be dismantled. And I have a feeling I'm talking to somebody today. I don't know who it is. But I want to say this. If you've ever experienced what the writer Watchman Nee refers to as brokenness, I read that as a young man. As I went through a season of the dismantling of my support system that I had garnered over the years. If you've ever read that book or you know anything about brokenness, then you understand completely what it is to have your support system dismantled. Those things that have propped you up, those things you have counted on, those things you have leaned upon that were there, weren't seen as bad things necessarily, but nonetheless they were there, and then suddenly they are dismantled and taken away from you, and a series of events takes place in David's life that destroyed and removed every prop that he had. He was hunted by his enemies. 
He was haunted by death. He was hounded by destruction. In his own words, he said, I am but a step away from death. And all of those things upon which he was leaning became dismantled and removed. All of them were gone. The position he was leaning on, he lost it. The popularity he was enjoying, gone. The people who were supporting him, that he was leaning on so heavily, they were all taken away. His wife, Michael, deliberately walks away. Jonathan, his dearest friend, was removed from his life. And then David had to remove himself from the prophet Samuel because of the relentless pursuit of Saul on his life. And so now we come to the day when that last prop that we talked about, his pride, it's time for that to go. It's his last prop. We come to the very bad day, and I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Samuel 21. I'm sure they'll put it on the screen as well. And let's go through this situation and see what happened with it. 1 Samuel 21, starting with verse 10. So David escaped from Saul and went to King Achish of Gath. He escaped from Saul and went to King Achish of Gath. And let's understand something about this, that David fled to the very place that Goliath was from. Let me say it another way to help us understand the severity of the situation now that David is in. He has to run to the place of his enemy to try to find a friend. Running to his enemy to try to find a friend. So he goes back to Gath where the Philistines are. Verse 11, but the officers of Achish were unhappy about his being there. Isn't this David, the king of the land? They ask, isn't he the one people honor with dances, singing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And of course, that was Saul's trigger switch to start throwing spears at at David. And that's what happened every time that song was sung, every time those words were given. So though it looks like a compliment and it looks like it should be a word of encouragement to bolster and to strengthen David, the truth is every time it happens, here's what it means, more trouble's on its way. More spears are coming my direction. So here's David running for his life, and he hears the crazy song again, knowing that every time someone sings it, he's going to be in trouble. Verse 12, David heard these comments and was very afraid of what King Achish of Gath might do to him. These words that David has heard from the officers of the king began to have power in him. He has run to this place to try to find a friend. He has run to this place to try to find safe refuge, and he hears those words, and those words start sinking in him because David is now terrified of what the Philistines might do in retaliation for what he had done to Goliath. And now, here's where the story just gets nuts, completely nuts. Verse 13, so what did he do? He's in this moment. He's gone back there looking for safe haven. And But he hears these words that are spoken. He knows that means trouble is on its way. Verse 13, so he pretended to be what? Insane. Scratching on doors and drooling down his beard. This is a man, Bethesda, who has come to his end. How do I get out of here? I'm going to scribble and put graffiti on the door, and I'm going to drool down my beard. Maybe they'll think I'm nuts, and they'll let me go. That's his plan. Verse 14. Finally, King Achish said to his men, Really? I I added that part. Really? 
must you bring me a madman? Don't we already have enough of them around here? Aren't there enough lunatics running around Fort Worth already? Don't we have enough madness? Have you looked at any of the debates? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that out loud. I was going to try to just think that and not say that out loud. And the king, yes, amen, hallelujah. And the king finishes by saying, why should I let someone like this be my guest? So, let's get this. This is the guy who by a miracle gets anointed of God to be king of Israel. He kills Goliath in chapter 17, another miracle from the Lord. And even in the midst of Saul's spears being thrown at him and all that he's going through, there is still a presence of mind and there's still an anointing upon him. But the last straw, the last crutch, the last prop in David's support system has been systematically dismantled by the Lord and David has reached the bottom. He has nothing left. The support system is gone. Every dream, every goal, Every hope had been dashed to bits at his feet. He has nothing and no one upon whom to lean. He's alone. He's afraid. He's alienated. God has taken him from the very top to the very bottom of life. And now here he is. And then when you get to chapter 21, he gets to the place where the words take root in his heart. He has come to this moment where this trigger switch, something is said. Those words he has come to hate to hear, they go deep within him. And it feels to him like those words are taking hold of him. And God had to make him face this death-defying situation where David was going to have to learn the hard way that his support system was now God and God alone. I hope you are hearing me today. I hope you are hearing me today. The support system he's known, that which he's built his life upon, is is gone. And God is deliberately saying, you now have one support system. And it's God and God alone. Here's a lesson for us today, church. Listen to me. Put your phone down. Quit texting. Quit playing those games. I can see you, all right? Put it down. Listen to me. Just a few more minutes. Here's a lesson for us. There is stuff in life that you cannot get out of because there is stuff in your life that God is trying to get out of you before He can take you out of the situation you're facing today. I'm going to say that again just in case you're still not awake. There is stuff in life you cannot get out of because there is stuff in your life that God is trying to get out of you before he can get you out of the situation that you're facing today. You may have walked into this place crying all week long, God, get me out of this. Get me out of this situation. And God's saying, I I will. I will. Once I get that out of you, then I'll get you out of it. And dear one, as much as I want to be the voice of encouragement for you this morning, and I do, God may very well be in the process of dismantling every prop, every support system, either that he allowed you to have 
or that you have created to bring you to the point of leaning only on Him. And the reality is this. You're going to have to go through the trial for God to get you, get out of you what He needs to get out of you. As bad as you want out of your situation, God obviously sees something profitable in it for you. I know you don't like that. You'd like me to preach something else, but it's the truth. See something that you don't see that is of value to the Lord and is profitable to Him. When our son Shaler was small, I'm sure that he heard his mother and I talking through the years about what it was like to be raised in legalistic Pentecost. We, can, we, 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 got, we got a journey with that. We can talk about that. You know, when, I, when we were kids, everything was a sin. Who's with me on that story? Everything was a sin. Uh, it was harder on girls than it was on guys. It had a lot to do with their dress and their hair and no jewelry and makeup and all that kind of stuff. But I'm telling you, it was, if you got too much pleasure out of bubble gum, it was a sin. I'm telling you. So he heard us talking about that. And uh, <laughs> we remember the day, maybe you had this experience. It seemed like it was about fifth grade for me that they had some time they were going to teach us all how to square dance, Okay. And so the day came for square dancing, and of course, I had to take a note from my mom and dad. Are you with me? Had to take a note from my mom and dad saying that it is against the policies of our church for our son to square dance. Please excuse Danny from square dancing today. And so I got to take that to the teacher. I'll never forget walking into Mrs. Davis in the fifth grade, handing it to her. She kind of rolled her eyes like, okay, whatever. And I was given an extra worksheet or I was allowed to read a book and I sat there and watched those kids having so much fun. In my mind, I was thinking, I could do that a whole lot better than they could. But it's all right. I'm Pentecostal. We don't do anything fun. So that's it. So that kind of conversation went on in our home, I'm quite sure, several times when Shader was, was a child and, and young. And so the day came, I think he was in sixth grade, where he was at, attending a public school in our community where we live. And in that school, they do this thing called cotillion. It's where they teach young sixth grade, 12, 13-year-old girls and boys social graces. It's hard to take the phrase boy and put it in the same sentence as social graces with their 13. How many know what I'm talking about? Just the way it is. You know, they, they, you would take them, they had to wear a little suit and tie and dress up and look nice and had to put on deodorant and brush their teeth and all that stuff. And all that was, you know, part of the process. And then they teach them how to greet a young lady at the door and how to put their arm out and escort her and whatever and take her to the table and then they teach you sitting at the table um, how to use the, all the utensils and when they're, you know, they're turned this way and that way, which one you use first. And I'm sure they learn that and it's gone immediately. You know, they just eat it with their hands after that. And so it, they teach them that and then they teach them ballroom dancing. Well, the problem is Shader comes home with this thing. And, of course, if you've got a 13, if you've ever survived raising a 13-year-old boy, you know that when you hear they're going to teach him to be nice and social graces, every parent's going to say, sign me up for that. Sign that kid up for that. And so he brings this home to talk about this is what they're going to do. And we're thinking this would be a wonderful thing. But he's already talked to the 7th and 8th grade boys who've been through it, who've told them that you need to avoid that at all costs and how awful it is. And so the one thing he comes to us and says, Dad, surely this is against our religion for us to do this. 
Surely it's against our religion. I've heard you and mom talk for years about all the stuff we can't do. I'm sure this is on the list. So we made him go, you know. Just as Shaler had to face his ballroom dancing that he wanted to get out of, David is going to have to face his circumstances that he wants to get out of. And the Bible says that David took these words to heart. That's what we just read. Took these words to heart and greatly feared what the king might do to him. He did not want to hear again, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands because it never worked out before him before, and he thought every time that happens, it's just going to get worse for him. And so our version that we read said David heard these comments and was fearful. There's other versions that read it this way that I prefer where it said, he took these words to heart. Now, let's go with me here. When you look at the original language on this passage, where it says, he took these words to heart, it's the same Hebrew word that is used to appoint or promote people to powerful positions or to a place of leadership. In other words, this word that's used in the Hebrew can be applied to these words that are given. These words that are spoken are given a place of promotion. So what this tells us is that when these words were spoken in front of David, they jumped up into a promoted place. These were words given a place of prominence within him. They are words that when they were spoken, they took charge is what this, the full meaning of this word means. These words that were spoken, they took leadership in his heart and his mind. These words even were put in a place of control. And I say that to remind us all today how powerful words can be. I doubt there is a person in this room today but whom somehow along life's journey didn't have the experience of a person of importance or significance to you who spoke words over you that you took to heart. Could be a father, a mother, sibling. Could be a teacher, a pastor. Someone of importance to you who spoke words. And if they were negative words or words that had a negative impact, somehow they were highly promoted within you. Could have been, you're stupid. You're ugly. You're a loser. You'll never amount to anything. I've told you often of my own, my own dad, who was a, a pastor. Wonderful man. Kind, gentle, gracious, forgiving, long-suffering. All those things you want a pastor to be that I'm not. He was all of that and more. Loving father to me. But he was also a father who had to correct. Can you imagine having to raise me? Don't answer that. So there were times words of correction, and sometimes they come with a sting to them, if you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been raised by a parent who knew how to speak words at a, in a certain way at a certain time. I recognize, as I began to study this and see what this meant, that there were words that were promoted within me. Today, I could take you to the room. I could drive you to the house. I could take you to the room. I could show you where I was standing or seated when certain words were spoken. And I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room. They somehow so seared themselves in my mind and in my heart. Whatever, whatever it's, it was a corrective word. Not that I didn't need it. Not that I blame my father for saying some of the things that he had to say to me in correction. Lord knows it should have been that and a whole lot more. 
Nonetheless, I understood immediately what it meant to have words take a position of prominence that here I am many decades later and I remember that as if it was spoken to me this morning. Words can take control of you. So David is in a position, hear me church, where he takes these words to heart. And the only thing that he can think to do to deal with this is to spit on himself and to drool down his beard and to take on the appearance of a madman, of an insane person, and scratch the walls of Gath. And that was going to be his way of dealing with this instead of trusting God, instead of leaning on God. In spite of the miracles that God had performed for him before. This is the first time he's been in this situation. This is the first time he's had this level of fear come upon him. The first time it's happened quite like this. It's new. It has a different intensity about it. It has a unique sense about it. Can I just be honest with you, really vulnerably honest about my own journey of faith? And I may have said this before, but I hear people say, oh, I just trust God. I just trust God. And I look at them and think, sometimes it sounds flippant to me. And I, I usually also have thoughts like, I am so happy for them. And that's great. But my reality looks more like this. Though I can recall the hand of God in my life in times past, though I can celebrate it, though I can be grateful for it, can I just tell you vulnerably today that when it comes to the battle of today, I now have to, by faith, bring before the Lord the exposure to danger that I'm facing today. That is a deliberate act of my will to come before the Lord. Does it mean I don't trust that God can? Of course it doesn't mean that. Does it mean that I don't recognize what he's done in the past? Of course I recognize what he's done in the past. Grateful for it. Can recall, celebrate it, all of that. But I'm in a new situation today. I'm in a new set of circumstances today. And this one, oh my goodness. This intensity is different than I've had before. And I have a new exposure to danger that I'm facing right now. In other words, I say it this way. I have to come again to the place of trust. Let me just try to be a little more pointed with it. I have to bring myself again to the place of trust. Whether the danger that I'm facing or exposed to today is physically, emotionally, financially, whatever it is. There's a new measure of danger in me that I'm exposed to today. And this battle today feels so intense. It has a pressure to it that's unique. I'm not sure I felt this one before. And I have to return to the point of trust. I have to return to the place of trust and remind myself, Dan, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. God is saying to David, I've got to teach you how to lean on me. Thankful for those things that you've had in the past. Thankful for the support system you were allowed to implement in your young adult life. I hope you young people are listening to this also. Turn that phone off that I just heard. Here's what we know about God's 
ability to teach us. Hear me, hear me. If we don't learn it the first time, some of you have been going around the same. I get seasick just watching you. If we don't learn it the first time, you're going to go right back through it again and again and again, all the while blaming everybody else while it's still happening to you. You want out. You want out of this situation. But God is saying, fine, when I get out of you, what needs to be extracted from you, then I'll get you out of that. Preach it, Dan. That's really good. They don't like it, but that's really good. If you don't like it the first time, you're going to be sent right back into the same situation. It may have a few different colors to it, a few different textures to it, a few different issues around. It's the same situation. It's the same thing. You're going to be sent back until you pass the test. But instead of leaning on the Lord, David chooses something else. He chooses to plead insanity, thinking that was the answer. And let's be fair to him. Don't we all face those moments of insanity? Don't we all face those moments of becoming someone other than who we really are just for the sake of getting out of an uncomfortable circumstance? Some of us become insane just driving down 820 at rush hour. I've seen anointed singers, anointed musicians. I'm not calling names. Don't do that to me. Anointed people completely go nuts when someone else cuts them off in traffic. How many know what I'm talking about? Insanity shows up in all kinds of places, even among believers. Hallelujah. And for David, his insanity was fueled or created by one root thing that was in him, which was his fear. Fear produced insanity, that insane moment. It wasn't suspicion. It wasn't anger. It wasn't lust. It was fear when he had taken those promoted, accelerated, advanced words of heart in, and they touched his core. And so it touched the fear with him, within him. Do you know it's possible to be scared to death? Literally. I've read an article that when the last earthquake took place in Haiti, cardiologists who were there said that when, they, when people heard the rumbling, just heard the rumbling, they died. And there was no visible sign of anything that hit them, no external trauma to the body. There was simply such fear that gripped their body that they died of a heart attack. Literally, they were scared to death. Fear, dear church, you don't need me to tell you this. It's such a strong enemy. And it's one of the number one top five enemies, uh, weapons that the enemy uses on us. Fear. Fear of all kinds. And we all stand in need of the power of God to set us free from the shackles of fear. Can you say amen to that? And with all of David's credits on overcoming fear in this moment, with everything else that he had overcome, with everything else, else, where every other time God had delivered him, when he gets to this moment, he's losing the battle. 
And the thing I love about God is something that I hear testimony about regularly, something Becky and I have experienced in our own lives, and it's this. Even in the midst of fear, God is able to give you a peace that passes all understanding. Diana sang about it last Sunday night. He gives you peace in the midst of the storm. I've heard Dr. Tony Evans say it this way. You want to know how you have the peace of God? I, every week I deal with people saying, Dan, just pray God give me peace. Just God give me peace. Okay, I'm praying. You know how you know when you've got it? It's when you've asked the Lord for it, and all of a sudden you realize you have a peace when you shouldn't have. When your circumstances would say you shouldn't be peaceful at all, but inside there's a deep settled peace in my soul. It's just there. How many are thankful for the peace of God today? There's a story of a grandmother who demonstrated this peace that passes understanding. She was on a plane en route to Boston. Foul weather forced the, them to make several stops along the way, and finally airborne for the third time, they hit even the most intense turbulence of the whole trip. So everyone, as you can imagine, on board was in panic mode as the plane was tossed all about the sky with this very intense turbulence, and everyone was concerned for their safety except for this one dear lady, this grandmother. There she sat, quietly, knitting a sweater, while everyone else was screaming and panicking and going through all kinds of stuff. And one of the passengers finally noticed that this lady is just totally unmoved by all of this that's going on about her. And so he went over to her, and he, and he said, ma'am, how can you be so calm in the midst of all this turbulence? And her reply was this. She said, young man, I am on my way to visit my son in Boston. But I have another son who died a few months ago, and he went to heaven. So when this flight is over, I'll be visiting with one of those sons by the time this day is done. Hallelujah. Let's declare it together today. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Not a spirit of fear, but of Okay, so let's turn it around the other way. Let's look at it the other way. Because we can say this. When fear takes over, the opposite or the inverse starts to happen. When fear comes in, the opposite of power would be weakness. Is that what you want? Then let that fear come on in and take root in you. Take those words in to heart and let that come on in. Because what you get out of that, what that yields is weakness. The opposite of love would be hate. This is not a trick question, folks. I'm not trying to make it difficult. And the opposite of a sound mind would be insanity. Insanity. And that's what fear does. Because death and life are in the power of the tongue. And when a word is spoken over you and you take it to heart and you allow it to have promotion, you allow it to take leadership, you give it first place and it rules and dominates and it has control. Dear one, we need to remember that leaning on Jesus simply means that in Christ we have no need of anything. He is everything that we, that we could possibly ever need and that he has not given you a spirit of fear but of power, love, and a sound mind. Church, we don't need those negative words. You don't need it. We just need Jesus.
Turn to your neighbor and say, I may not look it, but I'm not crazy, all right? Or I may look it, but I'm not crazy. I'm about to wrap this up, which is not your cue to get up and walk out. But I want you to listen to this point. Let me finish this, please. Slam the door. There you go. Listen, 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 listen. When you read the Psalms, many of the Psalms are connected with stories that happened in David's life. And it's always, always good to read the little subscript that is written over the psalm or just below the title or marking of the psalm. And it's there. I'm sure you've noticed it. It's good to do that. And I highly, highly, highly recommend if you want that psalm to have more meaning and impact upon you, that you then go and find the story that prompted the psalm that you're reading. It will give so much more meaning to it. So David wrote a psalm right after this moment of insanity took place. So think with me. If you're a psalmist and you've just had this moment where you've gone crazy to try to get yourself out of a difficult situation, what would that psalm look like? What would be the mood that David would, would portray after a moment like that? He's just spit on himself and drooled down his beard and written graffiti all over the walls of Gath and he acted like a demoniac. What would that psalm look like if it was you and me? It would look something like this. Oh, woe is me. I am so ashamed of what I've done. I can't believe I've acted like a crazy man. God, if you can, come forgive me, God Almighty. Or maybe you would have written one that sounded like this. God, I've, I have done it again. I've blown it. I am so thankful that today they don't have YouTube or Facebook so that someone could have recorded this and posted what I have just done. So what psalm is connected to this story? Well, let me read you the subscript, and then you tell me if you recognize it as you stand to your feet. No one leaving, just stand to your feet. Here's a subscript. It says this, The Psalm of David, who feigned or pretended madness before the king who drove him away. The psalm that we're going to see that is attached to this story doesn't even seem to fit. It's, so, it's, it's just so, it's such a misfit to this. But I want to quote it to you. And I think you've heard it. This is what David said right after he had had that experience. He said this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me. And he delivered me from all my fear. Hallelujah. Put your hands together and bless the Lord today. Magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. Here's what I think David was telling himself. I know that there are more spitting, drooling days coming. 
but I'm not going to spit and drool anymore. I'm not going to choose my own way of deliverance. I'm going to choose instead to bless the Lord at all times. And His praise is going to be in my mouth. I'm preparing myself for when those days come. And here's what I'm going to do. And when those days come, I'm going to lift my hands and I'm going to say, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Who is my deliverer? I'm going to worship Him. I'm going to exalt the one that I know can get me out of the situation that I am because that I'm in because my life is His and His alone. So magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Church with me, come on, lift your hands right now. Let's magnify the Lord. Open up your mouth and bless the name of the Lord. Come on, speak out your praise. Come on, church, speak out your praise. Lord, thank you that you're our deliverer. Thank you that through life you've delivered us. You've helped us time and time and time and time again. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. For those of you who will watch this online later, because it's not the time for you to have pen and paper, but I want you to know this. Go back and take this down when you see it later. David learned to lean on the Lord. He had to come to that moment where everything he had leaned on before was gone. And he had to learn to lean on the Lord. Let me break this psalm down for you this way. He had to learn to lean on the Lord's praise in verses 1 through 3. David had to learn to lean on the Lord's protection as indicated in verses 4 through 7. He learned to lean on the Lord's provision, verses 8 and 9. Go home and study it. He learned to lean on the Lord's promises, verses 11 through 17. He learned to lean on the Lord's presence in verse 18. And he learned to lean on the Lord's preservation, verses 19 to 22. Church, we can lean on Him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Prayer team, if you want to come, there may be folks who want prayer today. Pastor Brent's going to lead us in a song. If you are, have responded to this message in your heart today, whatever part of it might have touched you, and you want someone simply to pray with you today, I need to understand that my life is being dismantled, my support system is gone, and I want to be one who leans on the Lord. Someone can pray with you today if you want to come right now as we sing.